If you're struggling to lose weight, you've probably heard about weight loss medications like Wigovi or ZepBound, and you might be wondering if they're right for you. Meet Plush Care, a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. If you qualify, they can safely prescribe you medication from the comfort of your own home. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Let's talk about a story that no one else seems to want to talk about. It's very, very strange. Because three weeks later, this mass shooting on the Danforth, it's like a forgotten headline. We know nothing more, really, than we did on the first day, which is not much. We only know what we've been told. Mental illness, not terror. The nation's not at risk. Okay? So then why has the media essentially been blocked out from even getting the suspect's name? Why why would his social media be completely scrubbed? Why was an activist given like this unprecedented access to the family of the killer? Who brought him in? These are some of the questions I'd like answered. Don't you think it's odd that some rando activist stranger gets taken into the home of a family whose son just went on a killing spree? Like, that's not odd. Tom Quiggan is a former military intelligence officer for the RCMP, an expert on jihadist terror. Also, he's he's written a couple of books, including The Danger of Political Islam to Canada with a Warning to America. And he's he's written this essay titled Toronto Shooting, Politically Correct Cover-Up. Question mark. And the article indeed raises some troubling information about the killer, his brother, and that activist brought in to spin up a family statement. This case is not closed. And that it's been dismissed so quickly? Well, it looks like, or it sounds like, political meddling. Maybe I'm wrong. Let's ask the man. Tom Quiggan joins me now. Hi there. Good evening, Alex. Thank you, very, thank you for inviting me to your show. Well, thank you for finally writing an article I think a few of us have been asking about, but it seems either no one's interested or they're worried they're going to get, you know, uh, painted as as racist. Well, let's, uh, yeah, there's a lot of problems going on here. There's a lot of issues behind it. First off, uh, we put out a couple of different reports on this on the Quiggan report uh, earlier, but it was only when it got published in the United States in this essay form that it started to get some attention. But let's take one quick step back from the Danforth thing and say, look, we had the Bombay Bell restaurant bombing in Mississauga. Yep, another, another forgotten headline. Yeah, a bomb set off in a family restaurant during business hours and a bomb that contained nails and shrapnel. In other words, it wasn't designed for, you know, to make just a bang. It was designed to actually kill and injure. Uh, and that immediately after that, the police, you know, oh, there's no indication of terrorism. Well, when you actually go through the site, and I did, I went down, I went down to the site, I looked through all the available evidence, and it's like, I'm sorry, there is every indication here this is terrorism. This is not a mob hit. This was not personal. This is financial. This bears all the hallmarks of political violence, i.e. terrorism. Um, We've had the same problem on the Danforth shooting that, you know, nothing to see, move along, mental health issue, not a problem. There was the Sudbury uh, shooting at a bus station a while ago that almost nobody noticed. Uh, And again, you know, a disturbed individual is said to be shot in the bus station while he's yelling something. Uh, Nothing to see, move along. Uh, And the same with the Edmonton van attack and the knife attack there. Oh, no, this isn't terrorism. Everything's fine. Just move along, you know, et cetera. So there is a real pattern of this. Uh, and one sort of hesitates to use the term cover-up, 
Um, but unfortunately, increasingly, it's starting to look like the public is being willfully and deliberately starved of information that is factual. Now, flip this thing on the other side. And but you but let, before you this. go on, because I want to stop you there and ask, the, the public maybe, but doesn't the media bear a responsible to find the information? Oh, I mean, the lack of curiosity on the part of the media on this one is staggering. Uh, there, are, there are so many good stories moving around in the background here. It's amazing. Uh, and you would think that any competent media organization would be jumping all over these just because they're headline grabbers, if for no other reason. Uh, and then, I mean, there's the factual bits of what's going on. We're actually critical to the national discussion of where the country's going and what we're doing. So there's, you know, a couple of really good reasons why the media should be diving into a bunch of these stories. But instead, you know, if they don't fit the sort of politically correct social justice warrior kind of narrative that the media is looking to produce, then the stories just get immediately buried. Um, and yeah, I mean, in this particular case, uh, we're talking about how the statement was buried or the whole issue was buried saying, well, you know, it's a failure of the mental health system. And oh, yeah, by the way, we need more gun control. Mm. And the only problem is, of course, uh, three weeks later, whatever it's been, there's not a single shred of evidence to come out to say that this fellow had been diagnosed as anything um, at any point in his life. And oh, yeah, by the way, there's no connection between most forms of mental illness and people who go on mass shootings. Um, so even the whole mental health thing by itself uh, is a bit of a false flag. And then in this particular case, there's no evidence to show that was the problem anyway. What there is, however, is a ton of evidence to show that the individual behind this, the guy who actually wrote the so-called family statement, uh, Mr. Hashim, he has a rather long record of working for something called the National Council of Canadian Muslims, uh, whose parent organization, by the way, is a listed terrorist group. Yeah. Uh, he's also done uh, development work for ISNA, the Islamic Society of North America, which has been involved in three separate incidents with the CRA, the Canada Revenue Agency, where charitable status has been revoked for funding terrorism. Now, this same Mr. Hashim was the same guy that got the Toronto Star and pretty much the rest of the Canadian media to quit calling it ISIS, the Islamic State, or whatever, and start calling it Daesh. And what that was a direct attempt to separate the idea that this had something to do with Islam, when in fact ISIS had everything to do with a particular form of Islam, the political Islam, the Islamists. So the guy that writes the so-called family statement has a history of doing what one might call propaganda, or more politely, one might call it narrative shaping, whatever term you want to use. Uh, He has a history of doing this for groups of incredibly doubtful uh, backgrounds. But yet, nonetheless, this is the CBC Toronto Star sort of narrative being put forth. It's said, oh, no, it's mental illness. But how would he get access to that family? I mean, we were kept in the dark for a staggering amount of time, and people kept saying, well, relax, you'll get the information. But I've never seen, uh, uh, and I've covered a lot of crime, where we weren't getting access access to even the suspect name, because then you would start digging for information. But they certainly didn't give access because they were clearly scrubbing his social media. But how would this guy have been given this kind of access to the family who I'm not suggesting they did anything wrong, but certainly they would have been crucial to that investigation? Well, here, I mean, here's another sort of problem. There isn't really much of a family to speak of. Um, the brother, Fod, is in hospital, and he's in a comatose state to a drug overdose. The sister is dead. The father is permanently in hospital with another series of medical problems. The only family member to speak of um, is the mother. Um, so, and, and your question there is actually, how did this guy, who's sort of a 
narrative shaper or whatever at the National Council of Canadian Muslims to access to the family before the rest of the people in the country had uh, access to his name. Mm-hmm. But that is a question I would think ultimately is going to have to be put to the Toronto Police Service. In other words, how is it that you guys, you know, the Toronto Police, you know, obviously didn't know who the shooter was while the shooting was occurring, you know, and that's, that's not a problem. But very shortly afterwards, I think it was determined he had no uh, identification on, but yet somehow he was identified and then that information got passed to an individual who works for the National Council for Canadian Muslims. Right. That suggests to me that the information was back-channeled to him somehow. Right. Um, but because or, calls I mean, would have been made to to either Mr. Goodale, they would have go- this would have gone right to the top of security. This would have gone right to the top of CSIS right away because they would have been looking for a terror link that they... Oh, uh, yeah. I mean, it came out yeah. It came out that CSIS was involved that evening, yeah. which is really amazing when you think about it. It happened at 10 p.m. in the evening, and by you know the next morning it's already been reported that CSIS is involved. I was a bit startled by that one um, because, I mean, bad things happen. I mean, that's just, that's just, you know, the nature of a society. And, you know, every time something bad happens, you don't necessarily call CSIS. But let's just say you're the Toronto Police Service. Uh, a really bad thing happens, like the Dan Force shooting. So you, you've got the guy. You wonder who he is. You fingerprint him. You find out his name. Um, and one of the first things any police officer would do is type the name into something called CPIC, the Canadian Police Intelligence uh, Computer, whatever it's called. And what it is, um, or information, Canadian Police Information Computer, and what it does, it's a list of pretty much every traffic ticket, every criminal offense, every arrest that's ever occurred uh, in your jurisdiction, your provincial jurisdiction, or nationally. But what will happen if you, if you type in a name, you may actually get a little red light that pops up and says, before you do anything, call the RCMP. Before you do anything, call CSIS. In other words, there's an existing file on this person. And uh, it would be reasonable to assume in this case that CSIS must have an existing file on this guy in order for this thing to happen that quickly. The other issue in here, and the, and the other thing that's fascinating that's not being covered, is here's the shooter, Faisal. Yep. He has a brother, Fod. Fod is arrested with another guy called Ansari, and they had 53 kilograms of carfentanil in their possession. It's going to be a and good weekend. Is, I mean, yeah, I, mean I, yeah, I guess that's what we're supposed to believe, that they were just for a fun time. Yeah, I mean, what, what's fascinating about this is, you know, the street value of this stuff is alleged to be, you know, $13 million or $20 million, depending whose interpretation you take. But the actual, what one might call, you know, wholesale value of this stuff is into the hundreds of thousands of dollars or into a low million number. And if... Uh, Ansari is supposed to be just some, you know, wannabe gangbanger Toronto guy um, who's no big deal. He's just some, you know, loudmouth schmuck on the street. What was he doing with 33 guns and 53 kilograms of carfentanil, which is quite literally one of the world's most dangerous poisons? Um, it's about 100 times stronger than fentanyl, and fentanyl itself is about 1,000 times stronger than heroin. Yeah. I mean, this stuff is deadly, beyond deadly. Um, if you picture in your mind... Uh, you know the sweeteners you use yep. in your coffee, not the sugar, but that really fine mm-hmm. powder sweetener stuff? If you kind of scratched that out and took one grain of that and stuck it on your tongue, hello and goodbye, you're dead. Wow. That's how deadly yeah. this stuff is. Uh, so there's enough stuff there, depending on how it was cut, who cut it, how it was delivered, et cetera, et cetera. There's enough stuff there to have, been, to have made up about 280,000 doses of, you know, sort of a heroin substitute to sell to people on the street, or if it had been distributed correctly, it could have killed like hundreds of thousands, perhaps into millions of people, depending on how it was weaponized. Uh, Now, fortunately, weaponizing this kind of stuff is an incredibly difficult process, but it raises the question, like, what was this guy doing with 53 keys 
of the one of the most deadly substances on the face of the planet. Yeah. Yeah. And this is like multiple times stronger than fentanyl. If you know all these people that kill these kids that are dying in uh, British Columbia where they've had 17 or 1800 people dying from drug overdoses every year, that's fentanyl. This stuff is at least 100 times stronger than fentanyl. And again, you know, it's more in, in itself, which was like thousands of times stronger than heroin. Let me just ask so, you this quickly because I'm, I'm running out of time. I wish I had another hour with you. But do you believe, Tom, that this is a cover-up or do you actually think we will finally get the information? One should never assume malice when stupidity will adequately explain the situation. So cover-up, I don't know. Um, difficult to say, but I would say that there is a definite increased policy on the part of police forces right across the country, driven by their mayors, to quit releasing information and to bury any of these kinds of stories as quickly as possible. Will we get the full story? Probably eventually, but it's going to take a lot of digging over a period of time, and there'll probably be more events. Uh, the other thing i just say over at the Quiggin Report, one of the things we're doing, and uh, one of the things I'm working on right now is researching uh, with some of my European colleagues that there is, in fact, a new emerging kind of actor, not a gangbanger, uh, not a serious gang member, not a Hells Angels kind of criminal syndicate, and also not a terrorist, but a sort of blend of uh, a sort of political, ideological identity kind of movement emerging in which we've seen a number of folks like Faisal Hussein and others in Europe commit these sort of sometimes low-level, sometimes quite disastrous acts of what appear to be terrorism, but they, they don't really fit into that yeah. right category. So there's something merging, there's something different going on here, and I think that's a problem as well. We will discuss again, and I'll definitely have you on. Thanks so much for joining me. Cheers. Thanks, Alex. That is Tom Quiggan. I don't know about you, but something's not adding up. And I sure hope we do have someone who will do the digging on this because it uh, doesn't smell right. This is Global News Radio.